Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Again, this is page 398. 217-18. It says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I am told of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good of the work. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thanks, Josh. Yep. Good, morning. Good morning. Good to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors and uh, thrilled that you're here with us this morning. Uh, as Josh said, today is really going to be a fun day. We're continuing this series of, of, uh, of this discussion of roots, what it looks like to lay down roots that are going to outlive us. We've kind of said this vision of roots is that we're investing in something that will matter 100 years from now. There aren't many things that you can invest in, that you can care about, that are still going to matter uh, in the generation and, and, and generations to come, but, but this is part of it. So we're going to dig into this uh, portion of Scripture here today. Uh, I'm sure it's something that you've never studied uh, in depth and probably never heard a sermon about, uh, but we'll look at that. But before we do, I want to just remind you what's coming next week. So next week, we're going to be finishing this Root Series. And uh, part of this Root Series, as you know, if you've been here with us through this, is that we've made a decision to purchase the land next door. And we're asking you, those of you who call this your church home, to, to make a commitment to give uh, financially over and above what you would normally do for us to be able to pay for that land. And so uh, our goal for that is $1.05 million. Uh, that's a significant goal. That's going to require uh, those of us, again, who love and, and call this church home to give significantly and sacrificially. Uh, we talked a, a lot about that last week. That was kind of the whole message of the sermon focused on generosity. If you missed that, you might want to go online and watch that. But, but this next week, what we're going to do is we're going to give you an opportunity in the service to make a commitment. We're gathering this Tuesday with some of our leaders and going to have some time of prayer and praise with them, and they're going to have an opportunity to commit first. And then this next Sunday, you're going to have a chance to commit. And so let me tell you what's, what you're going to get. Next Sunday, you're going to get a, a commitment card. You got this actually the very first week, but it, it, it might be tucked in your Bible or thrown away or in a purse or who knows what. But I just want to show this to you. So you'll get a card like this. And when you open it up, uh, that red part that I have kind of highlighted there, essentially what you'll do is you'll say, I'm going to make a total commitment over the next 20 months for, you know, whatever the amount is, and then a first fruits gift, that, that's whatever you're going to actually bring next Sunday. So we'd love you to consider what's the total amount that you might give over the next two years to this project, and then what might you give next week as kind of an initial investment in this, in this project. So you'll be able to write that down. Again, you can give monthly, or you can give one time. You may be going, you know, I don't really intend to make this a, a thing I budget. I'm going to give a one-time gift that's going to meet my entire goal for this particular thing. However you want to do that, but we're going to give you a chance to, to make that commitment and, uh, and to do that in ways that hopefully will bless you and encourage you as you invest in something that really will, will make a difference for the future. I also talked last week about how some of you are in a situation where things are really tight and even really upside down, and your finances are not necessarily in order. I told you we would be starting a Financial Peace University class, and so that is on the schedule now. Uh, FPU, some people have already signed up for it, is going to begin Monday, April 28th. So uh, that's a nine-week course, and we would love for you to go through that if you need to get kind of right side up in your money. Our last class that just finished a couple weeks ago went nine weeks, 11 households. They, they paid off 
almost $68,000 in non-mortgage debt and saved almost $33,000 in cash. $100,000 swing by 11 households in nine weeks. It's a fantastic opportunity for you to get some habits and build some things that will really make a difference for your future. So that's, uh, that's available for you. We would love for you to do that. You can go online and sign up for that. All the registration actually happens through uh, Financial Peace University and Dave Ramsey's ministry, and all the links to that are on our website. So hopefully you'll, you'll check that out with us. As I said, we're going to dig into a portion of Scripture uh, that you may not have looked at before, um, but I, I want to I sort of set it up by asking you this question. Do you suffer from individualitis? It's a chronic condition. It's very dangerous. Do you suffer from individualitis? Individualitis is a phrase that I first heard from uh, a British preacher named Andrew Wilson. And actually, uh, the, a lot of the ideas from, from this message I originally heard in a message from him. And he talked about individualitis. Here's what individualitis is. Individualitis is seeing the world as if it's mostly about you. Not mostly about us. Not mostly about the world. It's about me. It's individualitis. Now, if you're a person, there's probably a degree to which you suffer from individualitis. If you're a Western person, which I assume many of you are, you really are likely to suffer from this. If you're a younger Western person, you're in big trouble, right? You, you have individualitis, just like I do, to the core. Here's some indications that you might have individualitis. If you think, there's a destiny out there for me. There's some great plan for my life. I'm going to do amazing things, rather than thinking, we have a great destiny, then you might suffer from individualitis. Maybe you read the scriptures, bless you, maybe you read the scriptures and you come upon a wonderful promise and you think, that promise is for me, right? You read Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you a hope and a future, plans to prosper you. If you read that and you say, that's for me then you probably have individualitis because what you probably don't realize is that you is actually plural. It's talking to a group of people. God has a, a plan for his people, not necessarily just for you. If you view the church as kind of optional, like, you know, I'll, I'll do that. If it can supplement this me and Jesus thing that I got going, then I'll do church. But if, I don't, if it doesn't exactly meet my needs, you know, this me and Jesus thing, that's really what's most important. If that's kind of your thought, you have individualitis. Rather than seeing the church as something that's essential, that Jesus didn't just die for you, he died for his church. If you see kind of serving and volunteering through the lens of, I have these gifts, what are they going to do to help me use my gifts? You have individualitis. Rather than saying, the church has this need, my company has this need, my kid's soccer team has this need, what can I do to meet that need? There's a huge difference in terms of how you approach that, right? The, the scripture calls us as the people of God to evangelize. Jesus said that, you know, as he recruited his disciples, he said, come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And when you read about evangelism or hear about evangelism, if the picture you have in your head of fishing for men is the picture of a solitary angler, just some of our fishing, then you might have individualitis. 
rather than the image really that you see in Scripture and what you see particularly among the fishermen who followed Jesus is that they did it with nets, the kind of nets that were so big that a whole group of people, oftentimes even a village and oftentimes little kids, would have to get in and sort of haul the fish into the boat because it, it was a communal project. See, if you think through that lens, you, you may just have individualitis. You may see that everything is mostly about you. And, and for sure, God has a personal love for each of us. Each of us are made in God's image. I don't want to totally neglect the idea that, that God loves you personally. But, but it doesn't take very much for us in our culture to, to spin that really far and think everything is about me. Enter a uh, kind of sarcastic British uh, theologian, Carl Truman, and here's what he says about this. He says, this belief that we are each special is by and large complete tosh, which I had to look up what that means. That's a British word that means rubbish. Most of us are mediocre, make unique contributions only in the peculiar ways we screw things up, and could easily be replaced as husband, father, or employee by somebody better suited to the task. Congratulations. This is not, you know, this is not a Joel Osteen sermon today. You're not, you're not walking out of here feeling very good about that, all right? Put bluntly, when I read the Bible, it seems to me that the church is the meaning of human history. But it is the church, a corporate body, not the distinct individuals who go to make up her membership. My special destiny as a believer is to be part of the church. And it is the church that is the big player in God's wider plan, not me. Now, we know that that's true, those of us who are followers of Christ. We know that's true, and yet we, we drift into individualitis. And, and when we drift there, what tends to happen is we tend to overestimate the impact that we can make. We go, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to be a history maker. Or you tend to underestimate it. And you go, well, you know, I can't really do anything. I'm not that gifted. I'm not that powerful. I'm not that strong. I don't have much influence. And both of those, whether you're inflated with pride or deflated with self-pity, really both of those are pride, and both of those are symptoms of individualitis. And so we're going to look at a passage, again, my guess is if you've ever read this, you kind of skimmed it and went, no idea why that's in the Bible, and just kept going. You probably have not studied it, you probably have not heard a sermon on it, Nehemiah chapter 3. Josh kind of read a preview from Nehemiah 2 of what's going on here. Uh, but we'll look at Nehemiah 3 here today. Let me just give you some context. Uh, this is all taking place about 445 B.C. Um, in the 600s B.C., the people of Israel had been uh, exiled into Babylon, and they were taken over. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was burned. The walls were burned. It was all torn away. And uh, the people were in exile in Babylon for 70 years. In about 536 B.C., Zerubbabel comes back into, leads a group of people out of Babylon back into Israel. And he comes back with a few thousand people. You'd think these people would be so excited to return home, but in fact, not many people came with Zerubbabel. Then in 457 B.C., Ezra comes back, and he begins an effort to kind of try to rebuild the temple. When 445, Nehemiah is working, and if you read the beginning of Nehemiah 1, what you see is that Nehemiah is working as the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. King Artaxerxes is the, the king of the Persian Empire. They had taken over the Babylonians, and, uh, and, and they 
Nehemiah is his cupbearer. This is like a secret service position, right? Think about it in the, in the ancient kind of times. If you were going to kill, if you were going to assassinate an important person, a leader, a king, what would you do? You might poison their food. You might poison their drink. And so a cupbearer is an incredibly important position, right? He's the one that's going that's to take the drink before you do every time to make sure you live, right? Every time he takes a drink, he's, he's risking his life. And, and Nehemiah, who probably did not, well, could not have grown up in Israel, hears about the plight about the, the weakness of, of Israel, specifically of Jerusalem. He hears some reports from all those that had already gone back, and what he hears is that Jerusalem's walls are torn down. He hears that Jerusalem basically lies in ruins. He hears that Jerusalem is a mess, and he's in anguish over it. He's burdened by it. And so he goes to King Artaxerxes, and, and King Artaxerxes sees. He says, you're so downcast. What's going on? And, and Nehemiah comes to me and says, I've heard this report about, about my people and about, about God's people and about how the walls that surround the city are broken down, and, and someone needs to do something about this. And so Artaxerxes allows Nehemiah to go. He gives him a great deal of funding and a great deal of resources. This pagan king God uses to be able to fund this project to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is leading this effort. And what we read back in Nehemiah 2, uh, 16, or 17 and 18, was sort of after Nehemiah had actually gotten into town and had inspected everything and saw that it was as bad as he'd heard. And, and if you look back, Nehemiah 2, 17, he says to the people with him, he says, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. See, Nehemiah is one man. And Nehemiah can be burdened by this idea that God's city is in ruins. But one man, with one burden and one vision, can't accomplish much. It's the people who say, let us rise up. We're going to do something. We're going to own this project. So Nehemiah chapter 3 is a description of these people who own this project. And I want to read this to you. We're not going to ask you to stand because it's going to take a while. Um, but I want to read you Nehemiah chapter 3. And I want you to hear the names of the people that, listen, here's what they did. They secured the future of God's people. Right With no wall means that Jerusalem is vulnerable again to attack, vulnerable again to being wiped out. Right? The, the mission of God to eventually seek and save the lost through his people is at stake in the rebuilding of this wall. And these are the people who did it. Nehemiah chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles, get this, their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. 
Joida, the son of Paseah, and Meshullam, the son of Besida, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uzael, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haram, Haruma, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaneah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Hiram, and Hasbub, the son of Pehath Moab, repaired another section in the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, repaired, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. You never thought you'd hear that word in church, did you? The dung gate. Keep going. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakaram, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Colhezai, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, this is a different Nehemiah, a different guy, ruler of half the district of Beth Zor, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rahum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half the district of Kelah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bevi, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Kelah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mitzvah, repaired another section opposite the ascent of, to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashab, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashab to the end of the house of Eliashab. It was either a big house or Eliashab was lazy. I don't know. <laughs> After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired behind, beside his own house. After him, Binui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pediah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east into the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate into the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Whew! Hey, a glass of water, right? Now listen, some of you are going, that's why I skipped that passage when I 
came to it in the, in the Bible reading. And, and, and probably a lot of you are thinking, why on earth did he read that? Like, he could have just gone, there's a bunch of names in here. Why read it? These are the people that ensured that the kingdom of God would continue. They matter. Someday you're going to get to go up to Malkaija, who built the dung gate. There you go, dude, I read about you. The whole point is, if you go, well, I don't care, who are these people, what does this matter to me, what do you have? Individualitis. This is a whole passage of Scripture dedicated to the idea that one man with one great idea can do no good without a bunch of people owning it with him. Right? The, the book's called Nehemiah, and we read about Nehemiah's great thing, but here's a whole chapter dedicated to all these people besides Nehemiah that made a huge difference. Let me just show you visually kind of what happened, what they were doing. Here's a diagram of uh, probably the wall that, that they helped build here. Uh, you see they start at the Sheep Gate, actually. That's where they began, and they go counterclockwise kind of around this whole thing. Uh, the dotted line there that surrounds the little green section, that was the previous wall of Jerusalem that had been burnt down and had been destroyed before the exile. So you can see they're building a much smaller city, uh, but they're building this city. And what this narrative does is just goes from gate to gate to gate to little place, just kind of reminding you. And they go all the way around. They start at the Sheep Gate. They finish at the Sheep Gate. That's what they do. This whole thing took about 52 days for them to build. They were on it. And the rest of this account describes some of the opposition and some of the things that they had along the way. Here's another picture. Uh, there's a bunch of text here that you really, I don't expect you to be able to read, but just to give you kind of a visual of the size of this, I've been to Israel, and this whole thing is about, it's a little bit longer than a football field. It's not massive. It, it, it's fairly small, but incredibly significant. So I want to share with us, I, I want to pull out of this passage some, some transferable principles, some things that you and I can learn from this that relate to us today. Here's the first lesson I want us to learn, is that God's work is more about we than I. God's work is more about we than I. We've already seen that, right? Here's all these people that you've never heard of, that you never hear again, you don't know anything about them, but they are part of God's work doing something that mattered for thousands of years afterward, right? Without this work happening, the city of Jerusalem is in danger. Without that work happening, uh, it's, it's unlikely that the people of Israel survive. It's incredibly big. And yet, one of the things I think is interesting in this is the more important you think you are, maybe the more important you are, but especially the more important you think you are, the more resistant you are to serving like everyone else. Did you see in verse 5? Verse 5 of chapter 3 said this, Next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. I don't, I don't repair walls. I don't do that. That's, that's below me. Okay. Well, then you miss out on having your name written in this book for thousands of years. The more important you are, the more important you feel, the harder it's going to be for you to just sort of pick up a shovel and get to work like everyone else. And aren't you glad that the Lord Jesus didn't have that attitude? Aren't you glad that the Lord Jesus, who was more noble and who was more wealthy and who was more in charge than any of these people, didn't go, well, I'm not willing to, to stoop to serve. 
In fact, Jesus, that noble one, is the one who humbles himself to the point where he's washing his disciples' feet, literally stooping to serve them before he is then, hours later, crucified and killed. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't have the attitude of those nobles? God's work is more, more about we than it is about I. And here's the second lesson. Each person has a different role to play. Each person in this story has a different role they, 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 uh, in different ways. Here's the first thing. They, they travel different distances. We read about, in verse 13, uh, Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They're about 20 miles away from Jerusalem, which, uh, you know, you can get there. You can make that drive in about 45 minutes today, but that's a significant hike for them to make that trip. They came different distances, whereas the priests... You see in verse 28, I mean, they live in Jerusalem, and so they repair the part that's opposite their house, right? Some of them are right next door. Some of them travel great distances. You see there's different abilities. If you go through this list, you see a whole different set of vocations and jobs and skill sets that these people had. Some were priests. Some were goldsmiths. Some were perfumers. Did you ever think about that? Think about how bad the ancient world had to smell, right? No deodorant, no... uh, centralized, you know, plumbing, it stunk, right? You need people to help make it smell good. These are like the, the, the people that went before Gold Canyon candles, right? Like that, maybe that's what they had. So priests, goldsmiths, perfumers. There are a bunch of government officials, people, they're in charge of this district, they're in charge of that, and temple servants, right? You have different abilities, different, uh, different rank in society, but they all had a role to play. You also have a different attractiveness of jobs. Did you notice that? The sheep gate, in verse 1, Eliashab, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. Why would they consecrate it? Because the sheep gate was really important. The sheep gate was the place where the sheep would come into the, to the temple area to be sacrificed. That was seen as a holy place. And so some people have that attractive job. They get to help build the sheep gate. Other people, you read about this in verse 11, uh, are part of building the, rebuilding, repairing the Tower of the Ovens. Uh, historians tell us that that Tower of the Ovens had a bunch of furnaces in it where often bread would be baked. It was like the, lo- it was the bakery where everyone baked their bread and it would smell really terrific, right? That would be a pretty cool place to work. And then you got Malchijah in verse 13, the Dung Gate. What's the Dung Gate? The Dung Gate is where they get rid of the waste. The animal waste, the human waste, right? They didn't have a plumbing thing. This is the gate where they haul that all out. And this has been, get this, it's been a week, but it's been a functioning city, right? So that dung gate is what they've been using for dung. And so uh, he's, he's there repairing it in the midst of everything that he's seen goes into the dung gate, right? Some people travel great distances. Some people have different abilities. Some people have different assignments that are of different quality, right? I don't know about you. I'd rather get the bread gate, (laughs) the tower of the bread, right? Then the dung gate, right? And there are times as you serve the Lord, there are times as you serve one another that you feel like, I don't like this. This doesn't smell very good. Yeah. But it really matters because here's the third thing we learn. Each person has an essential role to play. Each person has an essential role Here's why. There is no value, get this, there is no value in building some 
of a wall. There's no value in building some of a wall, right? The whole point of the wall is security. The whole point of the wall is to prevent your enemies from attacking you. And if you go, well, congratulations, we built some of a wall. That does you no good, right? That doesn't help anyone like go, uh, okay, well, we're still going to die because they're coming in here. Let me give you a historical example of this. The Maginot Line. This is a, a famous example from European history. After World War I, uh, the French decided, we don't really trust those Germans. And there's this, uh, not th- this guy with a really weird-looking mustache that looks like he's trouble in Germany. And, and we would like to build uh, some of a wall to protect us from Germany. And so they decided to build this. You can see on this map, there's the, the bright, kind of thick red line, which is where they, they built these strong fortifications of the Maginot Line. And, uh, and it started down, down south uh, near the Alps, right? They went, no one's going to go through the Alps to conquer us, so we'll start it there. And we'll build it up through, and then you see where it gets kind of dashed, and where it gets dashed is where the Ardennes Forest is. They said, there's no way that anyone could get through trees. <laughs> so they built some of a wall. Look at that. We really did it, Charlie. Some of a wall. Okay, well, it took... Hitler and his armies about six weeks to get to Paris because they just went around the wall. (laughs) Not helpful. Right? And so here's the thing I want you to see. Whether whether the person traveled near or far, whether the person was important in their job or or just kind of a temple servant, whether the person uh, built the bread tower or the dung gate, every part was essential. Every part mattered. And the same is true of the people of God today. Every person in this room, each of us together, matter as we seek to do together what God has called us to do. All of our service matters. If you don't believe that's true, and you dropped kids off today, then I would like you to right now go ahead and and go out and, and get your kids. And when you do it, make sure you tell the volunteer in that room, hey, you don't matter, and then get your kid. You'd never do that, right? You go, well, I don't, I don't really want to keep kids. I, you know, I watch kids all day, and I'm a mom, and I don't want to do that. Well, okay, well, someone's going to watch the kids. It's essential. Right? There was someone out there today in a, in a vest trying to direct you to say, hey, if you pull in here, you're going to run into yellow tape. Aren't you glad that person was there today? Yeah. And not just, not just in the walls of our church, but everywhere. God is using you at your job to be able to touch people that no one else in this church is going to be able to touch. And as you build relationships with them, and then they, you bring them, they build relationships with us, together God uses us. So their mission, you see here, was to build a wall. But what's our mission? And by, and by mission, I mean what's our big picture reason for existing? What do we do? What are we about? What, as the redemption gateway, why do we exist? Here's why. To make disciples, to encourage people to follow and trust and treasure Jesus. Here's what Jesus described. Here's the end of Jesus' ministry, Matthew 28. Here's how he said it. It says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The main command there is make disciples. 
way you do that is by going. It's by baptizing, incorporating people into the family of God. It's by teaching. But it's making disciples. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. We're not up here just to kind of give people a chance to play music and give me a chance to talk. Give you a chance to get together and have fun. All that's wonderful, but that's not why we exist. We exist to make disciples, to help you, to help me, to help us treasure and trust Jesus more. That's our mission. That's what we're called to do. Some of us travel great distances. Some of you, to go make disciples at your place of work, you travel great distances. Some of you, you're very close. Some of you, your main mission field is as close as the little children down the hall. Some of you have different abilities, right? Some of you could, re- could do a whole lot, and, and you have a really important job, and there's a lot of people that you manage and lead and that look to you. And, and some of you will go, oh, I don't feel very important, but you're very important because every person matters as part of this mission, every person. So I have a couple questions I just want to kind of conclude with here today. As we seek to apply this, here's the first one. First one is this. What role are you playing in the church's mission to make disciples? What role are you playing? And this is really for those of you that would call this your church home and, and you're a committed follower of Christ. If you're still exploring uh, the faith, I don't expect you to have a, a great answer to this. But if you would say, this is my church home. I, I'm here. I, I want to make disciples. I want to join you in that mission. Okay. What role are you playing? Notice, I'm not asking you, are you making disciples? As if it's up to you to be the one that goes out and and angles, you know, just one at a time, let me reel these people in. I'm not asking you to be the one that has to do it all, right? I don't like that question. People say, are you a disciple that makes disciples? Dumb question. Here's a better question. What role are you playing as we make disciples? Right, this is why the, in the scripture, the, the church of Jesus is described as the body of Christ. Because there's different parts of a body. Here's some that I wrote down. There are feet that go. There are knees that bend to serve. There are arms that reach to hug. There are hands that touch with care. There are brains that make things better. And there are mouths that speak. What are you? See, a lot of times people go, well, I'm not a mouth. And my feet can't go very far. Okay, but can your knees bend? Do you have hands that can serve? Because everyone matters. What role are you playing? Maybe you don't know that. Maybe you don't know the answer to that question. And and my point here is not to uh, kind of expose that and ridicule you for it. As much as it is to say, I do want to expose it and begin to help you begin to wrestle through that question. That would be a great question to be discussing with your family or to be discussing in your redemption community this week, to kind of go around and go, what role are we playing? And maybe you go, you know what, honestly, I have no idea what role I would play. And that's a great opportunity for the people in your life to come and say, well, you know what, you're really good at this. And when you do this, it seems to make a big difference. And you've really helped me with that. And you can begin to see the role that you play. Right? My wife serves... A lot of the time, not all the time, she's about to have a baby and this will change, but she's she served for the last couple years in the nursery. And uh, there are weeks she really likes it. There are weeks she gets spit up on. Right? There are weeks she's like, I've got to get home and change. I smell like vomit. That's not fun. But you know what she loves? 
she loves when some person comes in for the first time and they look a little uncertain because maybe they haven't left their baby with someone else ever or in a while and they can go and experience that kind of love and care and the ladies can do their best to calm that baby down and to love that baby knowing that mom and dad get to come in here and have an hour and 15 minutes of undistracted time to focus on Jesus. She loves that. She loves getting spit up on? No. But she knows the role. This is, when it comes to Sunday, here's the role I play in how we make disciples. Do you know that role? Do you have that role? You should. Here's a second question to ask. Are you an owner? Are you an owner? Right? There, there's a huge difference between someone who's an owner and someone who's a volunteer. Someone who's an owner and someone who's an employee. The, the clearest example I remember of this was a couple summers ago. I went to the zoo in Denver with my Aunt Marcia, and she had a good friend who was a volunteer at the zoo. And every time I asked him about the question, uh, questions about the zoo, he would always say, he would always describe his answers about what the zoo was doing by saying, we or us. Well, we're not going to open that exhibit for a couple more months. Well, we just got in this new panda. Well, we, well, we, well, we. Right? And, and I kept having to go, do you, do you work at the zoo? Well, I volunteer. But he talked like an owner, right? He didn't say, well, they, you know, aren't going to have that exhibit open in a while. And that language to me, it just made all the difference in the world. You go, there's someone that owns it. He gets up in the morning and he's excited to make a difference for the kingdom of God. And I'm not just asking you if you own the ministry here on these walls, but do you own the mission that God's given you? Do you own your part to play? We did have an example here in these walls a couple weeks ago. One of our pastors walked into the the men's restroom uh, right as the service was about to end. And there was a, a man in there who's just part of our church. And he was wiping down the sinks and picking up the the little pieces of, of trash that were laying on the floor that had missed the trash can, and he, he put that all in there. And Dale asked him, he said, well, why are you doing that? He said, well, we're about to welcome guests, and I want it to look nice. That's an owner. That's an owner, right? Uh, uh, someone else goes, well, they'll, someone else will do it. I'm sure that's someone's job. But an owner says, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to play my part. I'm going to build my little part of the dung gate and make a difference. It's been interesting as our church has grown because as our church has grown, and this you would expect, the kind of um, the, the level of ownership has decreased. That makes sense. You have more and more new people, more and more people kicking the tires, more and pe- more people trying stuff out. But when we did that survey about a month ago, one of the things we saw is that the number of people who had attended a redemption community had dropped from two years ago by about 16%. The number of people who had served in any way through the church had dropped about 9%. And so this is just an opportunity to say, hey, if we're going to lay down roots that are going to pass the faith on to the next generation. That's what this whole thing's about. This whole thing is not about how do we get all our jobs done here. We're doing this for a bigger mission. We're making disciples that together are going to make disciples, and in 100 years it's still going to matter. If that's you, then you've got to get in the game. You've got to say, I'm owning this thing. Let me give you one idea of a place to start. A place to start might be church membership. Now, some of you go, I didn't, what's church membership? I didn't know you had that. Well, it's a special club where you get a T-shirt and a card and a special parking space. That would have been really helpful today if you'd have been a member. That's not, that's not it. 
I think a great word for it would be, and we don't call it this just because for so long in so many places people understood what church membership is, but church membership is essentially church ownership. You can count on me. I'm going to own this. I'm on board with the church's beliefs. I'm on board with the church's mission. You can count on me. My name's going on the fridge. Mark me down for something. That's a great place to start. So we're going to start a church membership class April 28th. You're going to begin to see opportunities to respond to that and to sign up for that in in your bulletin over the next couple weeks. It's going to be there. And I would encourage you to explore that. Just attending the class doesn't mean you're making that commitment. There's a class that goes two weeks, and that, that class basically explains here's what's involved in committing to be a member, committing to be an owner. Now, some people will go, well, I don't, I don't think church membership is biblical. I don't really like that. Here, here's something just, uh, I read an article this week that I thought was really helpful. This guy argued that uh, it's not, that you can't consider yourself a part of the church if you're not a member. That avoiding church membership is not possible, not biblical, not healthy. He said, you can't be a member of the Rotary International if you're not a member of the local chapter. You, you can't, right, you, you, the Bible never tells you to be a member. Well, yeah, and the, the, the rule books of Major League Baseball never tell you that you have to be human. They just assume you're human, right? The whole New Testament assumes you're part of a local church. And it's not healthy for you to go, well, I'm just independent, and I'm just rogue, and I just do my own thing. That's not even healthy for you. That's the essence of sin, is to go, I don't need anybody else. I'll just be all about me. It's individualitis. So if you have those flinches, I get it. Maybe you had bad experiences. Maybe you came out of something where church membership became this really abusive and controlling, and and I'm sorry if that's what you've experienced. That's not what it's like here. And I would challenge you to think about owning the ministry by taking that step. This is all about an investment. That's what all of it's about. Roots is about making an investment making an investment of trusting God that will outlive us and pass on to our kids. It's about making an investment financially in a piece of land that in a few years will look just like it looks now. And in a few generations, it will be filled with people who are new disciples. And it's about investing ownership. Say, here's my part of the wall. It might be great looking and it might be really smelly, but you can count on me for this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to invest in your kingdom, specifically in this Roots uh, opportunity, but even more than that, just on an ongoing basis as we uh, go to work and get up and make meals and do chores and raise children and drive around. We have opportunities to honor you and to reflect your glory, to build your kingdom. We pray we could do it faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.